Now, I spent a lot of time praying over the message this week, how to approach it in the light of everything that's gone on, in the light of uh, the death of George Floyd, the sub subsequent uh, protests and the riots. And, you know, we could be silent on the matter, and silence is a response, but I don't think it communicates what we intend. Uh, we've already talked quite a bit about how, uh, you know, we, we all feel that, that uh, George Floyd was killed unjustly while under restraint by, by police using excessive force. We, we grieve over this death that should never have happened. We acknowledge the fear, the pain and the anger that it legitimately invokes. And yet we should wait for the courts to render judgment. And this, as I think about this, this kind of leads into, day, into today's sermon on truth and justice. You know, this week I've been watching some of the protests between last week and this week, reading a lot of articles. And there's been, of course, a cry for justice. And I've noticed a lot of people uh, quoting or paraphrasing uh, a scripture uh, from, from Micah uh, 6.8. And it says, And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And I know people really mean well when they quote this verse, but sometimes I wonder if they really know what it means. And so in one sense, we're going to take a deep dive into the understanding of justice this morning. Uh, not from Micah 6.8, but from Exodus chapter 23. And we've already looked at, back in Exodus 22, we looked at our vertical relationship with God and how we owe God our obedience. We owe God our reverence. We owe God the first things of what we have, not our leftovers. We owe God our consecration. We're to be set apart from the world and devoted to God. And we owe God our worship. And we've been looking at, in a sense, too, the horizontal relationship with others. You know, I talked about uh, how Scripture speaks about justice for women, justice for the foreigner in the land, justice for widows and orphans. And we're continuing to look at that uh, theme of justice today as we move into Exodus 23. Now, to, to begin with, I do want to give a little uh, outline, especially for the kids here today, uh, for all of us. But uh, uh, here are six points that I'm going to be talking on. And as I speak through them, uh, especially for you younger ones, maybe just pay attention and see when I, I touch on each one of these points. The first one, God wants us to always tell the truth. God wants us to treat each other fairly. God does not want us to join in in hurting someone. God wants us to be kind to those who don't like us, who dislike us. 
God wants us to help the people who are less fortunate than we are who live among us. And God is pleased when we do the right thing, even when no one is watching. So if you just pay attention and, and try to hear where I'm, when, I, when I touch on each one of those points today. You know, it seems like it's hard to find truth and justice. I mean, we, we can see it. We're, we're prone to be bitter at our justice system because of a lack of justice. We're, we tend to complain about all the injustices that we see in our country and in our world. We have to acknowledge that, yes, the poor are exploited and the rich often get a pass. Bribery corrupts leaders. And it seems like our society is increasingly governed or controlled by mob rule. Why? Well, I would argue because there is no love for God. You see, love for God is always demonstrated by obedience to the law of God. Remember the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let me put it this way. There can, I don't think there can ever be a society-wide level of justice if there isn't a society-wide love for Jesus. We may not see true widespread justice in our lifetime if there isn't a spiritual awakening in our land. I think they go hand in hand. But God nevertheless expects justice from us, his covenant people. We are to demonstrate God's lawful justice in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, and in our churches. You may not think about this, but truth and justice were just as hard to find in the days of Moses. I mean, God expected the Israelites to live up to his high moral standards. This included promoting, not twisting justice. But instead, they began to follow the corrupt neighbors, allowing immorality and injustice to prevail. See, God gave laws to help the people understand truth and justice. He wanted his people to guard the truths, to seek justice. And these are the laws that we're looking at right now in Exodus. And the first law is a direct application. If you remember going back to the Ten Commandments, this is a direct application of the Ninth Commandment. You must not spread a false report. Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. Now, following the very specific command, you must not spread a false report. It, it talks about a specific example. You know, a wicked person is someone who is guilty in this context. A malicious witness is someone who, who uh, deliberately lies in court. 
So the view here is really a conspiracy in which a witness is given false testimony in order to get someone who was guilty declared innocent. I mean, it could be the other way around, someone who's innocent declared guilty. And this command, though it's wrapped or described in a court setting, this command is for everyone, not just the witness who perverts justice. Now, what does it mean when it says, do not spread a false report? What does it mean in our own lives? Well, at the very basic point, it means do not lie, tell the truth. But a, a false report can be one that's untrue. And there's countless ways, though, to say something that isn't true. I mean, the most obvious way is to say something that's blatantly false. But most of our lives are more subtle than that. Sometimes we tell only one side of the story, leaving out details that don't fit our interpretation. How many times have, have you seen or heard this kind of really false report in the news over the past week, over the past few months? Sometimes we take people, we take what people say out of context. Sometimes we hear only what we want to hear. Then when it comes to telling someone else what we heard, we're not really telling them what was said, but what we heard. And I would argue that whenever we fail to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, we are spreading false reports. God wants us to always be truthful. But there's another meaning to the word false as well. A false report could be one that's unfounded. To be false could be take on the sense of being empty or worthless. In other words, the report doesn't even have to be based on fact. It may or may not be true and usually turns out to be false. But whether it's true or not, the person spreading it doesn't know for certain. And this is the problem. The report is based on an unreliable combination of hearsay and conjecture, usually with a little bit of prejudice mixed in just for good measure. And even though some of it may prove to be true, it is not well-founded and should not be spread. And sadly, I think we see this type of a false report quite often as well. A false report could serve as the basis for improperly arresting or bringing to trial someone who's actually innocent. False reports create the factions as one group believes the report about the member of another group. And these false reports undermine our legal judicial system by creating conditions that can lead to the conviction and punishment of innocent people or of letting guilty people go free. But think, think of what it would be like. Think of how things would be different if people obeyed this simple rule. Uh, 
Pat mentioned earlier, people are trying to find out the truth and we, 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 we hear one side and not the other. So we, we feel like we're not getting the truth. What would our world look like if everybody spoke the truth? If everybody followed this simple rule of not spreading a false report? I think a great deal of trouble would be avoided if people would just follow this command. Thankfully, I think in most churches, it's rare for someone to tell an out and out lie. Yet I would argue that it's probably not that uncommon for people to spread false reports. I think a, a lot of times what we, what we think we know to be true is a lot of times tainted by self-interest and tarnished by unjustified conclusions that we've reached about other people's motives. You know, most people I think would say, oh, I don't spread false reports. But I would challenge you, I think we should know ourselves better than this. We ought to be more savvy about our own depravity. We tend to believe what we want to believe and re repeat what we want other people to hear. We tend to be overconfident about the accuracy of our judgments concerning others. I think we also tend to put too much confidence in what we have heard about who said what to whom. Therefore, I think it is quite easy for us to spread false reports, sometimes without even realizing what we're doing. And false reports are terribly destructive. They're detrimental to the truth. They stir up controversy. They damage relationships. A rumor can destroy a reputation. And once a false re report gets repeated, it tends to take on a life of its own. And even so, I mean, although we may try our best not to be influenced by what we've heard, it's hard to put it out of our minds. And when it happens in the church, it brings dishonor to Christ. So God has given us this command. You must not spread a false report. How can we avoid this? Well, by not listening to unfounded rumors in the first place. You know this, if someone tries to tell you something that's none of your business, you shouldn't even listen. If it is our business, then we should go back to the people involved and make sure we have the story straight. We should be careful not to believe everything we hear, especially from someone who at that point in time is angry or has an ax to grind. And especially we should be careful not to repeat everything we hear. I would argue that we should only say what we know for certain, for certainty to be true. Even then, we should only say it if it is our place. If it's said out of love for others. And if it will advance the work of God's kingdom in the world. And I would argue that if our words are unable to pass these simple tests, it really would be better for us to not say anything at all. 
we move on to Exodus 23, two and three. Be a person of integrity. You know, another temptation that people face is telling people what they want to hear. We can easily be influenced by the opinions of others. We want others to like us. And as a result, we will we'll often stretch and squeeze the truth to make it fit our audience. But it says here, you must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. Do not testify in a lawsuit and go along with a crowd to pervert justice. Another way that the Israelites were instructed to maintain impartial justice was by being people of integrity. And this included, for example, testimony in a public trial. In this example here, the witness honestly intends to tell the truth, but finds it hard not to be influenced by the verdict that has already been reached in the court of public opinion. And the courtroom is not the only place that this happens. We see here, God is calling his people to do what is right according to his word, not according to what other people think or are doing. And here's an important part. Going along with the crowd, being a part of the crowd, is not going to exempt you from guilt. Now, I think about Twitter. You've got trial by Twitter. You've got public shaming by, uh, by Twitter now going along with the crowd. Now, one way to read this passage, you must not follow the crowd. You could replace the word crowd with majority. You know, I think a temptation here is to go along with the majority. Peer pressure, being swayed into any action that would be wrong due to the fear of looking foolish of looking incorrect or looking odd, looking out of place with everyone else. Giving into the crowd, following the crowd, simply because your position is different than everyone else's. That's what this warning is saying here. Do not let emotion riot over the facts or over due process. What is forbidden here is the peer pressure to overthrow righteousness, the peer pressure to defeat the truth, the peer pressure to misrepresent the actual facts. This is a warning to not endorse falsehood and to not promote injustice because of what the crowd is doing. And it's a struggle for us because God has created us this is, this is, you know, I struggle with, with the Zoom meetings. I would love to be back in church right now. God has created us to be a socially integrated people. Uh, he has created us to, to be in cooperation with one another. And as a result, it can be extremely difficult to take a stand against the majority in difficult and emotionally charged situations, or in a, in a legal case. I mean, it could be even that you're having to take a stand against your own friends or family. You know, and one example would be uh, the temptation 
in a court case, let's say there's a person who already has a long record of illegal behavior, improper behavior, and virtually everyone would like to see this person punished. But to join the, ma the majority in accusing that person of a wrongdoing when you have no direct knowledge that the person is guilty is wrong. And the law calls for individual believers to be willing to think and act as individuals clearly and righteously so that we can stand against all others and stand for the truth to be a person of integrity. Every day, I think we feel the pressure to play the crowd. You know, the Bible commands us to say only what is true, even when it's unpopular and unwelcome. Even though the majority is wrong, we're so used to going along with the crowd just to fit in. But the Bible says you must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. Rather than letting the majority rule, we're called, we are called to follow Christ. And so often this means going in the opposite direction. If you, if you think about it for just a moment, democracy itself is in, in a sense of, it's, it's a form of mob rule, but it's a very refined form that is expressed through voting through the ballot box. The problem is when the mob, or when society loses sight of the law of God. When this happens, the majority begins to rule by the rule of the majority rather than by the majestic law of God. And we need to understand that Apart from self-government under the law of God, the majority is seldom right. This was true in the Garden of Eden. This was true in the days of Noah. This was true at the Tower of Babel. The voice of the majority proved wrong 2,000 years ago when the crowds called out for the blood of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ will stand forever as a witness that majority rule can be deadly. If we do not learn to live by the rule of God's law rather than mob law, we truly will be guilty of injustice toward others. If we do not learn to live by the rule of God's law, rather than mob law, we truly will be guilty of injustice toward others. And verse three here says, do not show favoritism to a poor person in his lawsuit. Now, this seems strange to say, but sometimes there is pressure to side with the poor. And even this temptation needs to be resisted. The poor man is the one who has everyone's sympathy. He's the underdog, the little guy going up against the big establishment. There's special interest groups that shout out for so-called justice. Since the poor man is a victim, 
they argue, he ought to have the verdict go in his favor just because he's poor. But verse three really says, in effect here, it says, do not show favoritism to anyone in any testimony you ever give or any judgment you make, neither out of fear of the powerful or hope for personal gain, nor out of sympathy for the suffering of the lowly. Sin is sin regardless of who commits it. Now, God is on the side of the poor against injustice. And we as Christians must speak out against any injustice. Absolutely. But as we study this scripture passage, we come to understand that God knows that the poor are as sinful as everyone else. In a legal situation, this means that a poor man is as likely to be guilty as anyone else. God's righteous standards don't change in the face of someone pleading poverty as a justification for sin. God loves the poor, but he is not sentimental about the virtues of poverty. And God does not allow being poor, financial need, to become an excuse for injustice. If a poor man is guilty, he should be given the same justice as anyone else. You don't side with the rich just because they're rich, which is very common, but neither do you side with the poor just because they're poor. The poor sinner is accountable to God for obedience to the commandments, in this case, the eighth commandment, as is everybody else, including a rich sinner. As we move on through Exodus, looking at Exodus 23, verses four and five. Now you've got verses one, two, and three, and six, seven, eight, and nine that are kind of grouped together, uh, talking about law and uh, uh, the court, how things apply in a court. And yet here we've got uh, Exodus four and five, these that are addressing the type of attitude you should have toward others in the community and basic behaviors when no legal requirement is at issue. This has to do with grace, the grace we ought to show our enemies. Usually, people want to hurt their enemies. I mean, that's what an enemy is, isn't it? It's someone that we hate, and therefore we think it's okay to abuse them. It's okay to have hatred in our hearts toward them because they are our enemy. But God holds us to a higher standard. Rather than hating and hurting our enemies, we should help them. If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying helpless under its load and you want to refrain from helping it, you must 
help with it. And let me point out something here. Look at the, the word, you must return it to him. You must help with it. These are not nice recommendations. It doesn't say you might think about helping him. You must. We see two examples here. One, one is a situation where a man uh, comes upon one of his enemy's animals. Uh, the animal has, has strayed away and is out loose. And you know, it would be so tempting to do nothing at all and just let the animal wander off. After all, nobody's watching. Nobody would ever know that you've seen the animal. But the right thing to do would be to catch the animal and take it back to its rightful owner. Do the right thing, even when nobody's watching. The second example here is, is an actual encounter with the enemy. A man is walking along, probably thinking about how right he is and how wrong his enemy is, when he suddenly sees his adversary struggling with his donkey and has fallen and it can't get up. The pack that pack animal has either stumbled or collapsed under the heavy load it was carrying, and now it lays helpless. God calls us to rush to our enemy's side and lend him a helping hand. Let me, let me dive into that. Let me paint a picture for you here. Let's assume that two people have been embroiled in a hot dispute and it's gone to court. The verdict has not been rendered yet. The jury hasn't come back or the judge hasn't decided. The, the innocent person, the person that uh, is hope, he's hoping that justice will be served, but he does understand that in a fallen world, there's always the potential that things will not go exactly as he believes they should. At the same time, he's tempted toward bitterness. His neighbor has wronged him, and he's very angry. He's been chewing on this sweet morsel of revenge. And you see how verses four and five fit into the picture here. If we take it one step further, let's assume that after a few days, the judge returns with a verdict, and the innocent party, the, the party that was accusing his neighbor of some wrongdoing, for whatever reason, the judge decides that there was no wrongdoing in that case. And according to scripture, the accuser must accept the verdict rendered by the judge. But sinful nature being what it is, perhaps the innocent party, while accepting this ruling outwardly continues to blindly, to bitterly argue the case in his heart. Perhaps as the wronged party walks down the road one day, he sees his enemy's ox or donkey wandering the streets. On the one hand, he knows he really should inform his neighbor and do what he can to return the ox to safety before it's lost or killed but he is seething inwardly 
and his temptation is to bitterly turn a blind eye arguing it serves him right. When something like this happens, it's hard not to enjoy it. The scripture says, don't gloat when your enemy falls and don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. You see, God knew the temptation of the human heart and he gave us this law at precisely this point to curb sinful attitudes. The accuser might feel that way, but God would not permit him to respond in kind. God expects just behavior toward all, including enemies and their livestock. Yes, it would certainly cost time to return the animal to its rightful owner, and it may incur a financial cost, but God's command is unwavering, nevertheless. The complainant is required by God's law to act justly. The most basic reason is this. We cannot govern our lives by our hates. We must govern our lives by God's law. Another way to look at this is to say that God wants us to treat our enemies as we treat our friends. God knows the acts of compassion can help transform enemies into friends. <laughs> it's hard to hold on to a grudge. At the same time, we're holding somebody, our enemy's donkey. Something happens in our hearts that turns cruelty to kindness. It's hard for an enemy to keep hating someone who comes to help him. Compassion triumphs over aggression. And let me point out something else that results from obeying God's law. Understand that God in his providence has allowed this event or these events to happen for the purpose of your sanctification and perhaps for the sanctification of your enemy. In both of these verses, the natural tendency is recognized that you would not want to do something, and yet God commands it. But these laws, as I pointed out, are framed in such a way to make it very clear there are no options. Obedience is absolutely required, and it is good. It's good for your soul to do this. Whether or not your enemy is softened, whether or not you become reconciled, it is vital that you grow in your Christ-likeness. A conversion will occur in your response to your enemy. The question is, in your response, will you be converted into more of a Christ-like character or into more of the character of your enemy? Think about it. Do you have this type of enemy? Has someone mistreated you and still you are still holding a grudge? Is there someone who antagonizes you? Are there people that you secretly try to avoid? Is there someone who arouses your animosity 
if there is, then this is the person you are called to love. One of the distinguishing marks of the followers of Christ is they do good to those who hate them. Jesus said, you've heard it said that, it, that you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. As we move on, looking at Exodus 23, 6 and 7, be an advocate for justice. The rich often add to their wealth at the expense of the poor. But it's wrong to favor the rich, just as it is wrong to favor the poor. God says you must not deny justice to a poor person among you in his lawsuit. Stay far away from a false accusation. Do not kill the innocent and the just, because I will not justify the guilty. This command finds its basis in the character of God itself. This principle is stated out of Deuteronomy where it says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. First, verses six and seven here, uh, this is a strong admonition against judges, for example, to be, uh, to be flippant in the weighing of evidence or rendering a verdict. Judges have a responsibility to make sure that poor people get a fair trial. They have a responsibility to make sure that poor people get competent counsel. Rich people have more resources. This gives them a tremendous advantage when it comes to legal matters. It's up to judges to protect the powerless, making sure the poor get what they deserve. But to expand it broader, we are called to be advocates for justice. While the poor are not to be given any special privileges in the legal system, neither are they to be denied justice. And yet, I think, as always, the Bible strikes the perfect balance. The poor are not always right, and the rich are not always wrong. Thus, there should be no bias either way, no bias toward the rich, no prejudice for the poor. Everyone receive equal justice. This type of the same principle is found later on in, 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 in Leviticus. You must not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. But I think today in law and in politics, there's a good deal of talk about favoring this group or that group. But there is nothing like this. There is no favoritism in scripture. Favoritism always leads to injustice either way and ultimately to resentment and revenge. 
you know, judges, juries, they face temptations. You know, one temptation is to entertain, to entertain charges that they know to be false. Another is to condemn a man they know to be innocent. And yet we see here the law says, stay away from a false accusation. Do not kill the innocent and the just. Because I will not justify the guilty. I think one example I do just want to mention, an example of denying justice to the poor, comes straight out of Scripture. It involves a man named Naboth and his family vineyard. There was a king, King Ahab, who decided that he wanted this man Naboth's vineyard for his own. But Naboth did not want to sell his property. Then Ahab's wife, Jezebel, she arranged for the, some of the leaders of the city to spread false reports about Naboth. So they spread false reports, false charges. He was tried, convicted, and killed based on false reports. And when the news of Naboth's death was reported to the queen, she went to her husband and told him he could now take possession of the vineyard. Jezebel explained that Naboth was no longer alive. Amazingly, it doesn't say anything about the king Ahab asking how Naboth died. The king simply got up and took possession of the property. The king Ahab was evidently thrilled to learn that Naboth was dead. And without Naboth to object, Ahab was fully prepared to disregard God's standards and seize the property that did not belong to him, knowing full well that Naboth had been the victim of terrible crimes. I tell you, the Lord will not look over the injustice that has been committed. He would not let Ahab close his eyes to it. God sent the prophet Elijah to condemn the king for his crime. And the Lord told Elijah that Ahab had gone to take possession and that the prophet would find him at Naboth's vineyard. Elijah went and confronted the guilty king with the truth. Even though Ahab was not personally responsible for murdering Naboth, God held the king responsible for this wicked injustice. Ahab's sin was one of a deliberate and willful, willful ignorance of permitting someone to commit evil on his behalf and for his benefit without asking any questions or trying to stop it. And through Elijah, God made it clear that Ahab would pay a heavy, heavy penalty were acting unjustly, he would pay with his life. Dogs would lick up Ahab's blood in the same place that they had licked up the blood of Naboth. Justice will come. It may not be immediate, but justice comes. Exodus 23.8, do not accept a bribe. See, God's law ruled out any form of bribery. You must not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and corrupts the words of the righteous. What is a bribe? A gift of money, a gift of possessions to persuade someone to act illegally or dishonestly. 
justice can never be for sale. Whether it comes to cash, a gift, or some other form of quid pro quo, bribery always corrupts the course of justice. It closes a judge's eye to the truth and leads to injustice. Judges that accept bribes, they twist judgment and ultimately pervert a society. And again, another example, if, if think of the godly Samuel in the Old Testament, but then think of Samuel's sons. Uh, scripture tells us that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways. They turned to dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. The result of their perverted adjustment was that the people clamored for a king Rather than trusting God for justice, they took the first steps towards viewing the state as savior. And this has been the direction of the world ever since. So we have a warning here to be careful. When we corrupt God's commanded justice, we become a stumbling block to others. And then lastly, do not oppress others. There is a temptation to, just, to deny justice to outsiders. It says here, you must not oppress a foreign resident. You yourselves know how it feels to be a foreigner because you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. And the word here, do not oppress, the, the Hebrew word underlying this literally means to crush. And it's, it's talking about refraining from any action that is abusive or overbearing. Specific here is the maltreatment of foreigners. If you remember, God told his people to show kindness to strangers back in chapter 22. And here the same command is repeated in the context of public justice. In legal matters, as in anything else, the people of God are not allowed to take advantage of foreigners. Foreigners, for example, could simply be somebody of a different ethnicity, ethnicity than us. You think about the Israelites. They had a long history of being foreigners, of being treated unfairly. And so remembering their own history, God's calling them to treat resident aliens fairly and objectively. The Lord is calling for, a, in, a, in a, a sense of interracial justice among his people. Throughout scripture, God shows compassion, calls for compassion, calls for justice for marginalized people. Witnesses should tell the truth. Judges should be fair. Juries should make sure that justice is done. These same principles apply to disputes that we have at home, at work, at school, at church. As followers of Christ, we're always called to be truthful, impartial, and fair. And yet, in a sinful world, some questions 
we must acknowledge we'll never get settled right. But we must also acknowledge that there will be justice in the end. God assures us of this when he says, I will not justify the guilty. God has promised that one day he will judge the world in righteousness. When that day comes, the guilty will get exactly what they deserve, whether or not they were ever brought to justice here on earth. You know, the more we study the law, I think, the more we see how guilty we are. And God has said he will not acquit the guilty. So how can we be saved? Well, by putting our trust in Christ. He is the one who met law, the law's demands. we can be declared innocent, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. God is just. And yet there is hope for us. Christ took upon himself the sins of all who would believe in him. And the Father is able to be both just and the justifier of guilty sinners. God exercises unspeakable compassion upon poor sinners while at the same time upholding the law. And as scripture tells us, if we turn away from our sins, trust in the risen Lord Christ, then we will become justified sinners who no longer need to fear that judgment day. As I said, when that day of judgment does come, the guilty will get exactly what they deserve. The choice for all of us is justification in Christ or justice from Christ. Well, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, for every bit of it, as difficult as it may be. It instructs us and it teaches us Father, we pray, I pray that as we hear your word, that we would receive it, that it would bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. May we always pursue the truth, stand up for the truth. Help us to say, speak what is true. Help us to be people of integrity, to be advocates for justice, to love our enemies. Help us to have the same compassion that you have. Convict us, Father, when our own selfishness prevents us from promoting justice. May your word pierce.
pierce our hearts and drive us to faithfulness. We give you thanks in your holy name. Amen. Thank you, Roger. It seems like God wrote that for us yesterday or maybe even this morning. He, he penned those words in Exodus. He wrote them so that we might be uh, instructed that we might be tested, that what's really in our heart might be shown. Those words that we read, actually, they read us. They read the thoughts and intentions of our heart. They read how we've lived. There are those among us who say, well, we don't need to read the Old Testament. And yet, when we do, it shows us what our heart's like. Thank you, Roger, for, for digging deep into the scriptures about justice and what pleases God and what displeases him. And I think I'm, I'm awakened to the fact that this is an extraordinary time in history where, where people are protesting. The words that they use for their protest are calling out for God's commands to be obeyed. What do you think about that, church? People in every country are calling out for God's word to be obeyed and followed because they've seen the devastation that comes when we don't obey God's word. Some think that God doesn't have the answers. His answers are the only ones that make sense, and his answers convict us all. I don't think any one of us can leave this message thinking that our hearts are pure, our hearts are clean. We need a savior. We need someone who will accomplish these very things for us and show us how we can walk in them. This week has been tough for me. Um, I, um, as many of y'all know, I grew, I spent four years in South Africa growing up and um, that was a very racist place to be. And I know that a lot of the, um, the things that I've heard in my childhood and things have, you know, they really um, seeped in in ways that I don't like. And um, 
I've really been before the Lord about um, the things that I heard growing up. And even though, I mean, I remember having conversations with my dad and fighting with him about racist things that he believed. And, but yet I know that there are subtleties and there are things that are in my heart that are not pleasing to the Lord. And it grieves me a lot. And I, I want, um, I want to repent from those things. And um, I remember when I went back to South Africa after having been gone for many years, I went back in, in um, the October of 1998 uh, to say goodbye to my dad who was dying of lung cancer. And I remember walking down the streets and feeling um, from the South Africans such hatred. It was so palatable. It was so divisive and evil. And um, I just shuddered. You couldn't walk out on the street if you were white after 4 p.m. in the afternoon at that time in 1998. And I remember coming back here and um, to the U.S., and having an African-American serve me in some fast food restaurant or something, some, um, a lady, and it was such a relief um, to have someone smile at me from uh, being an African-American and, and serve me, you know, and be pleasant. And it was, it was such a difference. And um, because I had just come back from such hatred. And um, I know that the U.S. has a long way to go, and there's a lot of, a lot of racial divide, but I'm so thankful that um, people are willing to, to talk and to really try to hear each other. And well, I mean, right now, I think, I think um, it's right for us to mostly listen. <laughs> Um, but I'm thankful for people, the African-Americans that I know that are willing to cross the road. And I want to be one of those people that are willing to cross the road and to, um, to really hear. So, um, yeah, please pray for me that the Lord would continue his work because, um, I just want to be more like him. <laughs> Carla, I, I pray that you speak for all of us. I, I wish that tears of repentance could fill all of our eyes. I watched a, a little short 18-minute film by John Piper on bloodlines that he released nine years ago. Mm. And um, it's on the Zarin God website if you want to watch it. The first five minutes I was squirming in my chair because I had walked through everything that he talked about. You know, you go to a restaurant and there's a, another door around the back that the African-Americans can use. There's a separate water fountain that they need to drink from. Uh, you go to the theater and they're all ushered upstairs in the balcony. There wasn't any, any black person on the first floor. 
one time I happened to gaze into the, the restroom that they were required to use and it was just absolutely horrific. You know, and I was maybe eight years old, 10. Um, and I would ask my parents about it and they would, they didn't defend it. They just told me that's the way things were. They, did, they didn't tell me that our whole society was living in rebellion against God's commands because rebellion had become commonplace. Hmm. Jesus and, you know, I was thinking earlier about your experiences in Rwanda. It, I've heard you share some things that are remarkable as far as healing goes with, I don't know how many people are familiar with the backdrop, but I wonder if it would be appropriate to share a moment about Rwanda. Who are you, are you, who are you talking to? <laughs> Camille. Camille, you're on mute. Yeah, I mean, this, the whole thing about racism just crosses all lines. I mean, here in, you know, when I, in Rwanda, it was tribal. It was the Hutus and the Tutsis. And, um, and like Roger was saying, you know, they started spreading false malicious rumors over the radio and telling people, you know, watch out for your neighbor, they're cockroaches, you know, when the time is right, you know, we will get them. And, um, and then when the president went down in an airplane crash, you know, the horrible genocide began and everybody was just, you know, killing the Tutsis. And uh, unfortunately, it was, a, it was a racial divide that had been created by the Belgians, the Belgians, you know, under colonialism. And so it just went so deep. And then when it just exploded, people weren't even thinking anymore, just like what we saw in Raleigh the other night. They're not thinking then. The fire is ignited. And, and they, Rwanda had a huge uh, percentage of Christians. And Christians were killing Christians. Um, some people ran for refuge in the churches. And the, the pastor of a church of, a, of a, a Hutu church would take in the Tutsis and close the door and then and set it on fire. It was just horrific. But the, when it was all over, um, the government of Rwanda uh, decided that they were not going to take retribution. They, the whole society created community courts where the community itself um, said, if you will confess your sins and your crimes, we will forgive you and we will assign you to community service. And so when I was there and driving down the road, I saw hundreds of people working on a farm and, and the, the YWAM leader there said, well, he was Rwandese. He said, those people confessed their crimes. They were publicly, they repented, they were publicly forgiven and now they're working. It's like a restitution. They're working it off. It was, and and so it actually provided justice, like Roger was saying, but also a way for forgiveness and reconciliation, uh, which was a tremendous, I mean, example to the world, really. Um, 
But even my friends that still live there who are Rwandese say every year when they, when they remember the anniversary of that genocide, it's just such a terribly painful time. So there has been forgiveness, there has been reconciliation, but still this, the, those scars you know, run deep. Um, but I think as we already shared today, it's not just black versus white, or Hutus versus Tutsis, or Shia versus, um, what's it called? Shiite. Shiite. It, it is part of the human heart. It's the human heart. It's the, it's the fallenness of human heart where we would put ourselves above another person. Um, and it's worldwide. And you, you cannot, you, you, it's not limited to one nation. Um, so, but it's, tr what Carla says is true. Um, you know, I've been to South Africa several times and even still, you know, it's that, it's still there, you know, where you walk down the street and, you know, you feel the tension. Um, so, but there is, but forgiveness, reconciliation is possible. It is possible, but it, it's a process. Um, so, but there is hope. One of the most special things of the year to me is having the concerts of prayer downtown in October. Yeah. And because if you haven't ever been, I encourage you to go if whenever they're able to have one again, because probably two thirds, three fourths of the participants are black churches and they may have over a hundred churches participating and to worship with them and to pray with them and to be encouraged to cross over the line and pray with someone else in another row. And mm -hmm. it's just so, I love to worship with black people. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very, it's a very special time. And so I'm looking forward to things like that coming forth for us to have the opportunity to cross crossover. Yeah. But I think what Carla said really stuck out to me, Carla was just the, the, your, what, what you're working through in your own heart. And, um, and it doesn't, and it can come from so many sources. I was deeply wounded by some Brazilians that I worked with a number of years ago. And um, I took a terrible offense. And any Brazilian I ever met after that, I had a wall up. I mean, I just didn't want anything to do with them. I just uh, tr transferred that hurt over to all Brazilians until finally the Lord really helped me to, to forgive and let it go. But it, it can come through a work offense. It can come from, it can come from so many different sources. Mm -hmm. But so can the healing. And so can the healing, yes. And so can the healing. Yeah. But the, it starts with what you're saying, recognizing and listening to the Lord and responding to him. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks. So the Lord looks upon the earth today and he sees all of these tribes and languages that he's assigned territories and spaces and geography and for them to live. And then he sends his son in the midst of all that and uh, to show us the way to the father. He's the exact representation of the father. And he shows us the father's power and the father's love for us. He, he, he says he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He says he always goes with us. 
and he calls us to live for him. Mm -hmm. He calls us to live for him and he's given us his word, even speaking to when you find the donkey broken down of your enemy and what you're supposed to do about it. Mm -hmm. Just think of the detail and the compassionate nature of God to how we should reach out to others even though we've been conditioned to live other ways and every nation has their own conditioning. Um, I, I'm just, I just stand in amazement to think that God brought about COVID-19, that this other thing might sp spill out of it, that you'd have people crying out for God's law to be fulfilled in all the earth. I mean, they don't know that. They don't recognize that this is what God wants but may we have ears to hear that this is what God wants. This is what pleases him. And we have one who's gone before us to accomplish these very things when we can't do it on our own. Jesus has come mm -hmm. to do it for us mm -hmm. and to show not, us how. Excuse me. I'm not positive, but I think it was Rabbi Zacharias that I was listening to a while back and somebody asked him the question, uh, why in the world did God create angels? Because he's powerful enough. He can do everything himself. He doesn't need anybody to help him. And then on top of that, why did he create so many different types of angels? And Ravi just sort of laughed and pondered for a few minutes. And he said, why did God create so many kinds of different kinds of birds? <laughs> You know, there, there are thousands of different kinds of birds. And he says, I have to believe that God loves diversity Absolutely. because Amen. it's everything we see, mm -hmm. there's diversity. Yeah. Like thousands of different kinds of trees and thousands of different kinds of birds and how many different kinds of people are there, for goodness sakes. I mean, you can't just say white, black, Asian, or Hispanic because within all of those, there are so many subcultures that you can't even begin to count them. Mm -hmm. So evidently, God really likes diversity. <laughs> and so we need to like it too. Yeah. yeah, Greg, and I think that if we miss out on or put walls up and don't embrace the other cultures and things, we really miss a reflection of who God is. Mm -hmm. Amen. We really miss it. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Well, I'd like to call you all to um, take a few minutes. I'm going to play a song um, called um, Once for All because we are not hopeless. I mean, on our, on our own, we are hopeless. We have a Savior who has been tested in every way possible and shown himself perfect in obedience. And he has offered us redemption through trusting him. And he's promised to show us how to live. Mm -hmm. He's promised to cause his word to well up within us. He's promised to change the way we think. He's promised to change the way we pray. He's promised to change the way we act. He's promised to change the way we rejoice and that we weep. He's promised to be the answer for every question of human relationship and dependency upon God and peace with one another 
that we could possibly have. There's nothing that we need to know that Jesus has, doesn't possess. He has it all. And once and for all, he came to bridge this great divide between us and perfection. So I want to ask you to pray through it. You can, I think it has words. It's a, a live video, but uh, please join me in this. Let's see. I think this is it here.
was just thinking how amazing God is. I mean, what Carla shared, no, but none of us could fabricate. It's a total matter of heart, right? You can't will want to do it. It's just something that happens to us if we have him in us. I just think it's amazing. Redemption is amazing. Forgiveness is amazing. It's nothing that we deserve or that we've earned. Roger, thank you for bringing this message today for each one of you that shared Carly your confession. Um, I want to share something. I'm not done yet. <laughs> okay, Magda. Just very quick. Um, I will drive up to DC tomorrow to start my new job. I started to call it like that. It's a trial time, but, okay. um, and what it hit me this morning, I never thought about, it. I mean, I knew it, but I hadn't thought about it. But the fellowship of which the Cedars is part of does a lot about reconciliation. And I mean, what's going on in DC right now, I don't know, you know how it will continue, but I'm, yeah, and that's just the side. But it just made, made me wonder, and I've been digging in a little bit this week and last week about the history of the Cedars itself as one of the ministries of the fellowship and, um, and how it has changed over decades, like depending on the leaders of it. And it just kind of drives home the point for me that maybe a change is necessary again, considering the reconciliation that needs to happen in our world and in our country. So if you could pray for me, I, I am just one out of many that work there, like in the fellowship. Um, but I would love to, it's easier for people that come in and new or fresh to see what's going on inside than the people that have been there for decades. Would you pray that maybe um, God will allow like, for, like that op for an opening for a change of vision for the cedars. And, and I, don't, I have no idea what God wants to use it for, but it's a precious place and God lives there. You can feel the spirit when you walk in. But I think it, the time has come to really seek him and ask, what, what do you want us to use that for? What do you want? Uh, what do you want our energy to be used for that we pour into this building and this place and the people that we meet there? So I'll be there for three weeks and I try to, to link, um, to get, get on next Sunday again. Maybe I can give you a quick update then again already, okay, but just pray for me. We will pray. And Peter will join me the following week. So I'll okay. be by myself. Peter's coming too. All right. Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. So, are there anything anything else anyone would like to share? Um, there's something I would like to share, and it doesn't have anything to do with racial reconciliation or all. But Roger, I want to thank you because you talked a lot, and the word spoke a lot today about lawsuits. <laughs> and for the past three years, many of you know that my family was involved in being sued and in a lawsuit and um, not sued by somebody that was generic that we didn't know, um, but people that had names and faces that we had known for 50 years. 
and they were our neighbors. And um, as far as I know, they don't own any oxen, but if they, if they get out and they do, <laughs> then, then, you know, I have a responsibility to bring the oxen back. But it really hits in on the matter, again, that we've talked about all morning, about the heart. And it is my heart really, when I have opportunity to love and serve um, a neighbor that brought about um, a very costly lawsuit, uh, costly emotionally, uh, financially. And when, when there are those kinds of hurts, uh, it, it really doesn't, you just don't go, boop, and it's over. I mean, it, it is a matter of the hurt, the process, the healing, um, the forgiveness, that's the choice, and then the walking that out when you have an opportunity. And Roger, from what you said, there was one thing that, um, that I so realized that we're not the ones who have to bring about our own justice. I mean, that, that really is, but we are the ones who have to bring our hearts to that one who brings about justice. And he opens our eyes to, um, like Bill talked about last week, blind spots that we have. And, and uh, I mean, the, the lawsuit now is nine months where we're beyond it. Um, and so, um, the, the Lord still wants to put his finger on things in our hearts that we thought were finished. And I think that's what uh, our country, our cities, um, individual lives are experiencing right now. Things that we thought were finished, well, maybe they're not finished. Maybe the Lord wants to go a deeper layer into our heart. And he, he wants us to see him as the one who can redeem all things. Um, again, starting with individual hearts. So Roger, for the way that that has brought me to that place again, thank you. Thank you for presenting um, that word in Exodus to do that. Uh, I also want to let you all know that David Kale, a young man who came to our fellowship for a time and then he moved to Kentucky, he has a birthday this week and um, we sent him a card just to say we haven't forgotten about you, David, and, and we want to see God uh, continue to do the good work that he's begun in your life. On Wednesday night, we have an, another opportunity to pray uh, via Zoom, and we hope that you can all join us. Those times have been rich, and I believe the Lord's using those things to plow up ground in our, in our hearts and our fellowship. And um, you all know from when Tim announced that he and Lisa are, are getting married in August, but a lot of things need to happen between now and then. And uh, one is an opportunity that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And that is Lisa's mom, Rose, lives in an apartment and um, they are moving her out of that apartment into Lisa's townhome. And um, Tim told us, I think it was last week that, uh, they, he and Lisa have bought a house, um, but a lot of things have to happen before, before they move into that house, and one of which is to move Rose out of the apartment. So in the next two weeks, they're going to be moving boxes, and um, they, on June 20th, 
need to move some heavier things like a hospital bed, washing machine, um, different kind of things. I'm not sure what all he said, but that would be on uh, washer dryer hospital bed on June 20th. But prior to that time, they're going to be moving boxes all along. And um, I asked Tim if he would like help and he would. So I think that the, the best way would be if you are available anytime in the next couple of weeks and you could help pack some boxes, move some boxes in your car over, give Tim a call. I know that would, that would bless him. I don't, um, I don't know the time on June 20th, but I know that would be a blessing to not only Tim, but to Lisa and her mom. So that's a, that's a, a practical announcement of a, a way that we can bless them. Thank you, Mary. I wanted to share something that it's just a personal story. Um, as you know, the uh, funeral for George Floyd was held yesterday in Rayford, and that's my hometown. That's where I grew up. And uh, um, the sheriff there is Hubert Peterkin. And of course, he went to school with my brothers. He was younger than me but I knew who he was. And the day that my brother died, uh, my brother Mark died three years ago, Hubert Peterkin called my mother and said, I'm so sorry I can't come to the funeral for your son, Mark, but I do wanna tell you how I'll always remember him because when we were in elementary school, our family was so poor, I didn't have breakfast and I didn't have any lunch and your son always shared his lunch with me. And so it's just a personal touch from somebody that you all, you're seeing now on the news of him taking some leadership in a tiny little county in North Carolina that is now receiving national news. And you just never know the opportunities that God will have for you to bless somebody. And that one phone call he made to my mom meant so much to our family. And I know that each of us can call somebody and make a great impact in healing. So that, that I, I just wanted to share that. So let's pray. Lord, you have, you have brought us to the point where we know that you desire to do great things. Lord, we... Hope, help, help us to lift our eyes to you and help us, Lord, to allow repentance to come in where it needs to come in in our hearts. And Lord, let repentance be true repentance and not just social media repentance, but Lord, deep down in our heart, as we've, been, we've seen and witnessed here this morning, where we, we turn around, our actions change. And, and Lord, you have exposed blind spots in us. And in so many others, Lord, you've exposed blind spots. And Lord, we, we ask for that this would usher in a revival across the world. Lord, your purposes are great. And your name is great. And help us to live, Lord, as you have as you have uh, commanded us to live. Lord, we pray for Magda and Peter. 
We pray, Lord, for their, their ministry there in Washington at the Cedars and, and under the guidance of, of the fellowship there. And we ask that they might be a, a fresh breeze, Lord, of your grace and your mercy. Lord, that they might usher in a healing for people there in Washington. Lord, there is such a lot of divisiveness in Washington. But Lord, we pray that you'd, you, would, you would plant them there as your, um, as your trees of righteousness, Lord, at least temporarily and, and maybe longer, Lord. But we pray, Lord, that they might bring a grace and a, and, a, and a search for justice and a search for peace and a search for hearing and a search for a, a willingness to listen and to understand. Lord, we bring that, that they would bring healing, the healing of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for Tim and Lisa and Rose, her mother, with all this to take place in the next two months. Um, pray, Lord, that you provide help for them. Lord, that we would not discriminate against the aged or against those who cannot do on their own, Lord, but we would offer. And Lord, that you would guide us that we might be wise about how we help. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word in Exodus. We thank you for uh, Roger who, who gave us your word, Lord. Tune our ears to hear what you have said. And Lord, let them not fall on deaf ears. Let them not be rejected when they knock on the door of our heart wanting to come in. And let we not forget, Lord, that your words are life. And let us not forget, Lord, that you are the one who makes the ways for us. You are the one who shines the light in the deepest darkness. Lord, you are the one that keeps all of your promises to us. So Lord, I pray that you lift our heads this week. Make us mindful of how we can love like you love. Lord, we pray for David. And just remember him, Lord, and pray that you would guide his steps. Lord, for everyone... We just ask you you walk with us, Jesus. Help us be more like you. Lord, give our nation, our nation's leaders, wisdom. Lord, we ask for that gift of reconciliation. And Lord, we ask you for revival. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Heal South Africa, Lord. Heal Rwanda. Lord, heal Korea, the Koreas. Heal China. Lord, heal Peru. Lord, heal us. Heal us all, Lord God. Lord, heal Germany. And the, and the vestiges, Lord, that remain in all of these countries of division and hatred. Heal the United States, Lord God. Lord, you say that if we will humble ourselves, you will heal, hear our prayer and heal our land. Lord, help us to humble ourselves. We pray these things together in Jesus' name.
Amen.